I knew that I wanted to participate in this study because knowledge is power. And if my tumor can benefit not only my family, but others going forward, that makes it an easy decision. This is the James Cancer-Free World Podcast. I'm Steve Wartenberg, and today we have two guests, Dave Cohn, the Chief Medical Officer of the James, and a specialist in gynecologic cancer. And we also have one of Dave's patients with us, Sally Hughes. A while back, Dave filled us in on the Ohio Prevention and Treatment of Endometrial Cancer Program, also known as OPTEC. It's a Pelotonia-funded statewide program that's that's benefited a lot of women and saved some lives. Sally was a participant in OPTEC. She's doing really well. And she has since become very involved with the James in several different ways. And she is also a Pelotonia rider like Dave. So welcome, Dave and Sally. Thanks, Steve. Great to be here. Thanks so much for having me, Steve. And really special to have Sally here as well. Yeah, I always love it when we can have a doctor and their patient, a patient who's doing well. And you're right. It, it kind of puts a smile on your face and people can't see, but Dave is smiling right now. <laughs> so Dave, let's start off. Give us a, a quick overview on what is endometrial cancer and then sort of the background and progress of Optech. So endometrial cancer or cancer of the uterus is the most common gynecologic cancer in the United States. It's estimated that more than 61,000 women are diagnosed every year with this disease. And fortunately, the vast majority of them do extremely well, but it seems that about 17% of these patients will end up going on to die of their disease. Um, because it's the most common malignancy uh, gynecologic cancer in the United States, it's something that we have a lot of experience with. And what's really interesting about this disease scientifically is that it's estimated that about 5% of women that have endometrial cancer get it because of a hereditary predisposition to the disease, meaning that they inherited something from uh, one of their parents that put them at risk for developing this cancer. And is that the Lynch syndrome that we've, we've talked about before? That's right. So Lynch syndrome is the most common hereditary cause of endometrial cancer, but also the most common cause of hereditary colorectal cancer. Um, and I know that we've talked before on this show about Lynch syndrome and other hereditary cancers, but that's why it really is an interesting opportunity to do some research as to who gets Lynch syndrome associated cancers and therefore what can we do to prevent this disease or to pick it up as early as possible. And so that's, I take it the, the goal of Optech is to identify uh, patients, women with Lynch syndrome. So you can then see, um, on their family tree, who else has it, their children. That's exactly right. And so when a patient comes in and is diagnosed with endometrial cancer, one of the things that's done across the United States is screening to see whether or not they could have a genetic predisposition to the disease. And if the screening test, which is done on the cancer after it's removed is positive, then those patients are typically referred into a genetic counselor for some definitive testing of their blood to see whether they carry the Lynch syndrome gene that caused them to get the cancer. And so a lot of the work that we've done in the OPTEC study is predicated upon the work that's already done with another statewide initiative, the Ohio Colorectal Cancer Screening and Prevention Initiative, 
which is this network of hospitals around the state of Ohio that were set up to screen all of their patients, including those in central Ohio and at Ohio State and the James for Lynch syndrome. And based on that network, we set up a very similar network of hospitals for those that treat endometrial cancer and screen their patients for Lynch syndrome as well. But I think that even more impactful than identifying those patients who have cancer is working with those family members that of those women that have cancer that do not yet have cancer so that we can do something in terms of prevention of those women ever getting cancer or even the men for getting colon cancer because colon and endometrial cancer are linked through Lynch syndrome. So if I understand you correctly, when you find through the OPTEC program, when you determine which of the women who've been diagnosed with endometrial cancer have Lynch syndrome, you can then screen family members who have not yet had cancer to determine if they're more likely to get it. That's exactly right. That's called cascade testing. And that's kind of the biggest power of any genetic initiative in endometrial cancer is identifying those people who are unaffected, who don't know that they're at risk for getting a cancer, finding that risk, and then doing something to mitigate the risk or prevent the development of cancer. That's where the power of a study like Optech really lies. Yeah. From what I understand that there are tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people in this country who have Lynch syndrome, who don't know it, who've yet to develop cancer. And it's really important that, you know, patients are able to advocate for themselves to understand their family's history, most importantly, and to know what they can do to prevent cancers themselves. Well, good. You led me right into what I was going to ask Sally about, which is family history. So Sally, tell us a little bit about your background. My family's from Marion. And unfortunately, we have a very strong history of cancer. Um, Both of my grandparents, three of my four grandparents died of cancer. Uh, My father died at the age of 53 of brain cancer. And my mother is a breast cancer survivor. So at growing up, I was cognizant of this and realized that it would be important for me to be proactive with my own health. And I've always had the attitude that knowledge is power when it comes to your own health. Um, I've been good about getting screenings and I attribute my good health so far with the exception of my little bump in the road with endometrial cancer in in large part to the fact that I I pay attention to my body and I go to the doctor Um, and I don't always um, look forward to going but I am always am glad that I went when I walk out the door. Wow. That's a great point about how women and everyone should be empowered to take uh, proactive steps with screenings, colonoscopies, mammograms, um, everything, anything you can, and hopefully have access to, you should try to do. It's important to advocate. Women need to advocate for their own, for themselves. Um, you know. S- So what happened that you discovered you had endometrial cancer? Were you having some sort of physical problem that prompted you to see a doctor or was it just one during one of your regular screenings? No, it was not. I actually um, had breakthrough bleeding, but it wasn't consistent. It wasn't frequent. And I attributed it to perimenopause and didn't think much about it. I was 51 years old. It all, it all made sense because I had done my homework. (laughs) Um, 
And eventually I realized that this was not normal. And that prompted me to go to my OBGYN and look further. Now, Dave, before we get back to, to Sally, I'm curious, does this happen to a lot of women and they ignore it for too long and what could be an early stage cancer turns into a harder to treat later stage cancer? So endometrial cancer is a disease that's most commonly picked up in the earliest stages because people will have bleeding. And most people recognize that that's not normal and seek medical care. So I think in many ways, bleeding is a fortunate sign to have yeah. that leads to medical care and doesn't lead to advanced disease. But like Sally said, recognizing what is normal and then seeking medical care and advocating for oneself if it's not is the key to early detection to prevent somebody from ending up dying of the disease that otherwise could be uh, something that's very treatable and curable. Yeah. So Sally, you were, as you mentioned, you uh, lived and still live in Marion. Where did you go initially and, and what happened? Uh, Steve, I actually um, live in Columbus, but I delivered all three of oh, my children, okay. children <laughs> delivered all three of my children in Marion and, um, you know, I continued to keep my same physician. So I went to Marion um, and my doctor was quick to do an ultrasound and the ultrasound was quite telling. And within a, a 24 to 48 hours, um, having done a biopsy as a follow-up, I received the news. Um, upon receiving the news, I was given the best advice I could have been given, and that was to seek um, medical care at the James and was referred to Dr. Cohn. Wow. So that was a pretty incredibly tense, stressful two, three day period. Um, what's that like when you hear that you have cancer? Well, for many cancer patients, I know I'm not alone in saying that it's somewhat of a blur. Um, there's, there's many parts of it. I probably don't remember clearly, but I was, um, I was pretty focused. I knew what I needed to do and I was focused to get where I needed to go in the most expeditious manner possible. Now, Dave, you know, Sally a lot better than I do, but that term she used focused need knew what I needed to do seems already. I can sense that Sally is someone that that is a perfect description for. She knows how to get things done. <laughs> That's exactly right. And so I can't remember the amount of time it was between the initial consultation and surgery, but it wasn't very long. Um, but you know, every patient's different. Some people need a little bit more time to think about options. Um, as we've talked about before, Steve, I would never hesitate to, um, have a patient get a second opinion if there's concerns about whether that treatment recommendation is the right one, uh, because having that expert opinion and having that validated is really important to get people, I think, not just physically, but emotionally to the right place that they're doing the right thing with their health care. And that's another form of really important advocacy. Well, Sally, so we just heard from your doctor. What was it like when you first met Dave and his team and they sort of walked you through exactly what you had and, and what their treatment plan was? There was a real feeling of, of relief. There was a plan. I was comfortable. We were ready to march forward. There are no guarantees with cancer, surgery, et cetera, but I knew that I was where I needed to be. 
Well, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to hear more about the plan that Dave and his team came up with for Sally and how Optech factored into this. A revolution in lung cancer treatment is happening at the James. We're proving lung cancer isn't solely defined by location and stage, but rather the individual molecules and genes that drive it. Simply put, there is no routine lung cancer. That's why our world-renowned specialists put their expertise towards treating one particular lung cancer, yours. At The James, we go beyond the routine to prevent, detect, treat, and cure your lung cancer. To learn more, call 1-800-293-5066. We're back with Dave Cohn, the chief medical officer of the James and Sally Hughes, a patient of Dave, um, who's doing great. So Sally kind of, what was the treatment plan and, and how did it go? What, what is, you know, I know every patient is different. So what is the plan Dave and his team came up for you? While my cancer journey was relatively short in comparison to many others, it was real. Um, my journey, my treatment plan was a surgical hysterectomy with tubes and ovaries. And at the conclusion of the surgery, I was told that there was a pretty darn good chance that would be it, but it would depend upon obviously final, final pathology. Now, Dave, before we get to that and, and Sally's pathology, Sally, as you mentioned, you're older and you've had children. So having children wasn't a factor. If someone was younger and hadn't or wanted more children, would you have done a different uh, type of treatment? So most women with endometrial cancer are diagnosed at the age of 60 or so. And so in this circumstance, it's pretty rare to have somebody who's in the childbearing age or someone that wants to have children in the future. If that were the case, there is some other you know, options that are provided. Um, sometimes we know that manipulating the hormones uh, either within the uterus or within the body to kind of counteract high levels of estrogen may be effective in treating cancer and allow someone to become pregnant. But those are pretty rare circumstances and something we address on a case-by-case basis. Okay. And so back to Sally, you had your surgery and you got clean margins. Everyone's optimistic. Um, What was the pathology? (laughs) Um, It's my understanding. While the tumor was not small, I was fortunate in the sense that it had not penetrated the myometrium to the percentage that would have required my having radiation and or chemo. Oh, that was, that was, you know, I put you on the spot asking you for a very medical definition, but you did great. Excellent. So I, I, I totally understood that it was small enough. Thank goodness that you didn't need radiation and or chemo. Your margins are clear and knock on wood, you're still in remission, no signs of the cancer returning. Um, then how does, uh, Dave, how did Optech factor in, in, in the sense of genetic screening? I think it's really important to talk about what the standard screening for Lynch syndrome is, and then to talk about Optech. So for every woman that has a hysterectomy um, in almost every practice in the United States, there's some type of screening for Lynch syndrome that involves going through multiple steps. The first step is looking at the proteins that cause Lynch syndrome in the cancer to see are they present or not. We know that about one out of three 
uh, patients do not have the proteins and therefore they could have Lynch syndrome. And then the next step is to do another type of a test on that tumor to see whether or not it could be Lynch syndrome or not, narrowing that down to about 10% of patients from 30. And then for those patients, they go then to see a genetic counselor to get a blood test to see whether or not they have Lynch syndrome. And that drops that down to the 5% rate of the overall population. So three separate steps, three separate tests, a lot of time and expense. And so Sally's screen was negative for Lynch syndrome, which is great. She also enrolled in the Optech study, which allowed us to do a single stop test. And that's the question being addressed in Optech is, can you take blood? And then can you do a single test to figure out, do they have Lynch syndrome or not? Kind of jumping to the final answer in a way that's quite unique uh, and using the tumor's genetic sequence um, and the blood's genetic sequence to make a determination as to whether or not someone has Lynch syndrome without those sequence of steps being required. And she did not have Lynch syndrome. That's correct. As expected, her screen was negative and on Optech, her results also were negative on the research side. So that must have been a relief. Yes, it was. I knew that I wanted to participate in this study because knowledge is power. And if my tumor can benefit not only my family, but others going forward, that makes it an easy decision. And it's my understanding that my tumor is still being held for any sort of potential research that may be coming, coming forward. Well, Dave, just to check now, although Sally did not have Lynch syndrome, were there any other abnormalities that were detected on this where you went you know, from step one to three automatically and did something through the blood? So what's interesting about the study is that we're testing for many different genes, not all of which are Lynch syndrome. And that's one of the other powerful strategies that can be utilized is that we talked about the BRCA gene, but there are other genetic susceptibility genes that we also test for. And if they're positive, then those patients could be also referred for further evaluation with a genetic counselor and further testing if necessary. So that's one of those really important strategies that you can think of is that we know that while the, the path for a woman who has uterine cancer, endometrial cancer is Lynch syndrome, they may also have other type of genetic conditions that we can test for at the same time. And that's a very interesting intervention that Optex is going to allow us to dig a little bit deeper into to see, are there other genetic conditions that we can be testing for? So have you found that to be the case that someone doesn't have Lynch, but they have some sort of other identifiable genetic mutation that's known that may or may not have caused this cancer, but could cause something down the road. We've actually found that. And so we presented our data at a large national meeting in June of 2021, demonstrating that when you test people with this strategy, you can pick up other genetic mutations that would put them at risk for other types of cancer or syndromes. And really interestingly, not every patient that we picked up these genetic changes knew that they were susceptible. So again, that's that power of intervention to prevent cancer in that individual, but also to prevent cancer potentially in other family members that are screened to have that same genetic predisposition to other cancers. Sally, did, did anything turn up on your screening through Optech? My screening through Optech revealed that I have a gene called the BARD gene. And while it is not clearly defined, it does some does have some associations with breast cancer. 
And my family history with breast cancer is already very, very strong. So as a result, um, I am now enrolled in the high-risk breast clinic in which I am a patient and go every six months for either a mammogram or an MRI. And Sally, also from what I understand, you've since three years ago in your, your diagnosis and treatment, you've become involved in the James and in your community and trying to uh, empower and educate others. I have. My children would be the first to say that cancer really did have a silver lining for me. Um, as a result, it really gave me some clarity as to how I wanted to spend a portion of the next chapter in my life. I am now officially, as of last week, an empty nester, and I have lots of time and lots of energy. So while COVID has not been generous to my efforts, I have three areas where I'm currently focusing and very excited. Uh, The first one is I am working to establish a community-based cancer coalition in the Marion community. And these coalitions exist in along in the Appalachia area and have had some great success in working to reduce the health cancer disparities that currently exist. There's a lot to be done and anything that we can do to help improve the care in the underserved population, it's, it's, a, it's a great result. Number two, I am also on the James Ambassadors Society Leadership Council. And the James uh, Ambassadors Society is a group of approximately 700 advocates of the James. And our goal is to educate the population so that they may convey the efforts and the research and the progress that the James is making towards a cancer-free world. And it's... It's been very rewarding. Number three, actually, this committee that I'm on was originally funded through Pelotonia Seed Money, and it's an app. It's a spiritual app that it will be designed for patients as they migrate through their cancer journey, and it will address those patients who are religious, religiously want a religiously specific um, journey. And it will also address those who are not religious, but are mindful. And I am proud to say that this will be tested with patients very, very soon. And we are, you know, currently requesting um, additional funding. So Dave, on, on the scale of all your patients, Sally seems to be kind of at the top in terms of her uh, activism. <laughs> You know, Sally is a very special patient as all of our patients are. I think that her energies that are directed towards, um, you know, helping underserved communities to eliminate health disparities and to disseminate the work that's done at the James is really critical to the mission. Um, And also, again, last weekend, we were at Pelotonia together and seeing her ride in support of funding for cancer research, I think really close the circle of what she's able to do in giving back to the overall community. It's a very special relationship, I think, to see a patient that's so actively involved in helping to advocate for their own healthcare, but also helping to advocate for the healthcare system in which they're treated. So 
you're right and that Sally is a special person to do this. But Sally, it's, I've talked to a lot of people who once they go through their treatment at the James and meet the people there, want to and do get involved. What is it about being a patient, being connected to the James that, that makes you and others want to get more involved? Steve, I benefited from the generosity of those before me. And I'm a survivor. I can't think of anything more fulfilling than giving back. That's my goal. Wow. Well, that leads us right back to Pelotonia, which which is how we started. Pelotonia funded the OCCPI and Optech and and so many other uh, really great programs with a lot of them, as you mentioned, Dave, to serve underserved populations that don't get the care. And we did. All three of us rode in Pelotonia uh, very recently. So, Sally, um, tell us about your ride. And I know just a little bit about it, that you really didn't have much time to train. <laughs> Well, I had time. I just, I chose not to. Oh, okay. <laughs> you, you had three, you had three committees at the James you were involved in. <laughs> it's one of my most favorite weekends of the year. My daughter flew home. My son flew home and we were ill-prepared. My daughter borrowed a bike. I had been on my bike two times, once for a 25 mile um, leisurely ride with my husband and once for a 50 mile ride. Um, and you were doing a hundred miles. Yes. We signed up for a yeah. hundred. We picked up Michaela's borrowed bike and we were fortunate enough that our alarms went off. We got up early. We went down and realized uh, that Michaela's bike was not the right height. So we turned around, almost missed our eight o'clock start time, had the bike lowered Michaela then went to the grass, grassy area to practice clipping in and clipping out. And after one successful try, we went through, we went through the, uh, the opening, the opening line. <laughs> Wait, so Michaela had never used clip in bike shoes before? Well, she did last year, but just wanted to make sure because this was a borrowed bike that okay. she would be able to do it. That they, they were the right clips for the right shoes, I hope, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, exactly. Um, as Dave will remember, the ride was fairly flat till those last 15 miles. How did you and Michaela do on those after that last rest stop in those big hills? We embraced every rest stop <laughs> up until that point, And I attribute that to our success in finishing. We were very conversational for the first 85 miles. And for the last 15 all we did was just growl. We would, <laughs> growl. Go, we would go down the hill and then growl because we could see the next one coming up. <laughs> that is true. You could see them coming. Um, uh, if you would like, can you kind of approximate your growl for us? I'm very curious what that sounds like. Well, it was probably more of a grunt and it was oh, okay. more of a, oh, here comes another one. <laughs> yes, I know that feeling well, but you made it, right? We made it. We didn't walk and we actually felt really good. We had a, um, a nice Italian uh, dinner that evening and it was memorable as usual. Um, Michaela also has a boyfriend who is a testicular cancer survivor, oh. just reached his two year mark. So 
This is especially special for Michaela. Yeah, I mean, exactly. She was writing for her mother and her boyfriend and a lot of different people. And same with you. It's who we ride for and with makes all the difference. Yes, it does. And speaking of riding with, I did ride with Dave a little bit on Saturday. Dave, you did the 100 and I did the 80, but it I don't remember what mile. I hope it was a, a lot of miles in. You passed me. <laughs> <laughs> You're almost at the end, Steve. Uh, not quite, but, but that was very nice of you to say. So <laughs> how was your ride? It's uh, like Sally said, it's my favorite weekend of the year. Um, seeing the incredible support for Pelotonia, for cancer research at the James, the entire community being out. Um, it, it just is so special. And my favorite part is seeing colleagues and friends and patients that are on their bikes or that are on the sidelines or that are, are volunteering is just incredibly rewarding. And kind of, for me, it encompasses what makes the James sp- such a special place to work. And I hope to be cared for, um, that people realize it's special to be cared for because of that as well. So I had a great ride. Um, I ended up riding the hundred miles with some friends, um, and then came back and did it again on Sunday, different route, uh, hundred miles on Sunday as well. And I was happy not to ride my bike on Monday. I'll just put it that way. There you go. And again, on Sunday, I saw you briefly, we started about the same and I saw you a little ahead of me and then I never saw you again until the finish. <laughs> <laughs> so, but we all made it. You, uh, Sally did hundred. I did 180. Dave, you did 200. And like you said, it just to be around all those people and be part of something, so special is amazing. Absolutely. And again, the funds that are raised through Pelotonia allowed us to do the Optech study, you know, being funded at $1.1 million to do this enormous project around the state of Ohio, not just helping the patients here at the James, but hopefully helping the entire catchment area of our comprehensive cancer center really makes everything, when you think about it, full circle. Uh, that's why we do what we do. This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center, Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital, and Richard J. Solov Research Institute. For more information, check out our website, cancer.osu.edu.